are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. In Proverbs 29, Solomon makes the statement, where there is no vision, the people perish. I believe the hope of survival for any given nation or generation or church is directly related with the ability of that nation, generation, or church to have a vision. Not just the ability to see, but I'm talking about the ability to see as God would have us see. Now tonight, I know we can see physically, but my question to you is this, do you have a vision? I believe vision is to the work of God what oxygen is to the lungs or blood is to the heart. It is vital. It's necessary. It's absolutely essential. It's foundational. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, there's proverbial death. Now, tonight, I know we can see, but I want to ask the question again, do you have a vision? It was Helen Keller, a woman who could not physically see, who made the statement, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight, but no vision. Jesus said, for this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Listen, any time they should see with their ears and hear, or rather see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Vision propelled Abraham toward the promise of God. It was vision that swung the hammer and drove the nails and built the boat for Noah. It was vision that sent a small stone deep into the giant forehead of a giant named Goliath. It was vision that put a group of fearful yet faithful believers in an upper room praying until the power of God fell upon them. I want to ask the question tonight. I know you can see, but do you have vision? Vision has filled pulpits. Vision has built churches. Vision has evangelized mission fields. Vision has altered societies. Vision has changed the destiny of nations. Vision has put families back together. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But can I say where vision abounds, great things can be done for the glory of God. I'm not talking about looking through the lens of man, but I mean seeing through the eye of faith in an almighty God. It's the ability to see as God sees that births a hunger in a man. It's the ability to see as God would have you see that makes the fire burn. It's the ability to see as God would have you see that would allow you to step up and beyond the average and step in to that which is exceptional. Our nation tonight, our churches, our families, and the lost souls that we've been left to reach with the gospel need a Christian that sees not like they can see, not like the average person sees, but somebody with a vision birthed in their heart by God to see with insight, to see past today and into eternity, a vision that produces action. We need some preachers with vision. We need some Sunday school teachers with vision. We need some bus workers with vision. We need some mamas with vision. Some fathers with vision. Some young people who have a vision. The most pathetic person in the world is someone with sight 
but no vision. And that's what we need. Not just sight, but vision. Not just seeing the possibilities uh, in our own potential, but seeing the possibilities when you and I get yoked up with the power and potential of God. I'm talking about a vision, not just a burden. I don't mean just a burden. A burden says I hope. A vision says I will. A burden says I'll pray about it. A vision says I'll prepare. A burden says God send somebody. A vision says here am I. Send me. And can I say we do need someone to step up. Someone to get tired of being average and tired of being mediocre and tired of being status quo. And somebody says oh God I don't want to be the average Joe in the youth group. I don't want to be the typical Tammy in the youth department. If somebody's going to be used of God I want to be used of God. You say but I don't have much ability. I don't have much charisma. I don't have much that you would look at and say that would make a difference. Can I say it's not you anyhow and it's not me anyhow. God's not looking for ability. He's not looking for charisma. He's just looking for a surrendered heart that would say oh God would you lay on me a vision. I'm convinced this evening if the death bell tolls on our generation I'm talking about this generation of churches and this generation of families and this generation in our nation that it will toll and somewhere on the calls of death it will read there was no vision and the people perished. Jerusalem was far from the glorious city that it once had been. The gates are now burned with fire. The wall that once surrounded the city now lies waste being ransacked by invading, invading armies. Rubble remained where once there stood a towering monument for God upon the earth. When Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, the glory days were a distant memory and the good times had come and gone. Now you've got to remember Jerusalem was the city of God. It's where the great temple stood. Sacrifices were offered there. Praises were sung there. Man met with God there. It was a place of joy, once a scene of revival, a testimony to the world that the God of the Jew, the God of heaven, Jehovah God, was on his throne. It was a holy place. It was a sacred place, a place blessed by the hand of God. In fact, the psalmist described it in Psalm 48 and said, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation. Uh, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great King, God is known in her palaces for a refuge. And can I say that every Jew would have found hope in a thriving Jerusalem. As the city of God prospered, so did their faith in God. But sadly, now brokenness has replaced the blessings of God. Destruction is evident where once his favor had rested. When we come to our text passage, Jerusalem has gone from the top of the mountain to the lowest depth of the valley. Fourteen years prior to our passage, Ezra had returned to Jerusalem. And he'd set out to rebuild the temple. But imagine this, if you will, that rebuilt temple would stand alongside all the heaps of rubble that used to be the walls and gates of the city. Every day, those 50,000 or so Jewish people who'd gone back would be surrounded by stinging reminders that God had blessed in the past, that God had been good in the past, that there was a day when the hand of God and the favor of God rested upon that place. But that day was not their day. On all sides, there was reproach. Now, 850 miles west of Jerusalem, there's a far different scene. In the palace of the Persian king, there is no rubble. The palace stands in pristine condition. 
It's a picture of power and grandeur. In the Persian palace, there's a young man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jewish man, and he serves as the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah's position put him in close proximity with the king. One day, while Nehemiah served in the palace, a man returned from Jerusalem. Nehemiah begins to question this man about the condition or the state of the city of God. This messenger reveals to Nehemiah that the scene of Jerusalem is a reproach upon God. It's a horrible testimony to the world uh, consider, uh, concerning the God of the Jew. In chapter 1 and verse 3, the verse says, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now I believe as those words left the lips of that messenger that a fire began to burn in the heart of Nehemiah, much like the fire that had consumed the gates of the city. Nehemiah is moved, not just moved to complaining, but he's moved to tears over hearing about the state of the city of God. I don't doubt in his mind he could almost hear as the walls fell. He could smell the smoke infiltrating his nostrils. It broke his heart to think that that is God's city. That's where God used to move. That's where God used to bless. And now it's in that kind of a situation. Now you've got to stop and think that Nehemiah had probably never seen the glory days, if you will. He'd only heard about it. Maybe he'd sat on his grandfather's knee. Maybe he'd talked to his parents and they told him about the beauty of the city and how God would meet with his people there. And Nehemiah was broken and burdened and hungered to see God move in that city in his day the way God had moved in former days. Now I like what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah does not just get on social media and complain about how bad it is and how dark it is and how far gone it is but he let his burden drive him to his knees and began to cry out to God to do something about the condition of Jerusalem. Can I call time out and say I'm afraid most Christians are professional complainers and mediocre intercessors. Because I find people all the time that want to tell me how bad it is and I want to say duh. But when's the last time you did more than post or complain about it and you got in your prayer closet and tried to get a hold of God on behalf of our nation? Now, when you come to Nehemiah chapter number two, you have to understand that four months have passed from Nehemiah chapter one. That's 120 days. 120 days broken. 120 days burdened. 120 days of weeping and praying and fasting through the night. And you say, why did Nehemiah pray for so long? And why did, he let, why did God let him go through that for so long? I think this is why. I think he was giving Nehemiah time to let his burden grow into vision. Because in chapter 1, Nehemiah prays, God, I sure wish you'd do something about it. But by chapter 2, he begins to pray, God, would you use me to do something about it? Now, in Nehemiah chapter 2, the Bible tells us that the king notices that Nehemiah's countenance has fallen. He approaches Nehemiah and says, Nehemiah, what is it that troubles you? Nehemiah reveals to the king that he's broken over the condition of Jerusalem. And boldly, he goes to this Persian king and says, I would like permission to go and do something about it. I want to be proactive in this thing. I'd like to do what I can to see if we can't rebuild those walls and get the gates restored. I'd like to go back and rebuild the city. Now, here's an amazing thing. 
King Artaxerxes is lost. Hello? He's not a saved man. He's a pagan man. He's not born again. But aren't you glad that God is in control? God so moves on the heart of that heathen king that he's going to give Nehemiah permission to go do the will of God. Now, can I say it doesn't matter who's on the temporal throne. It's about who's on the eternal throne. It doesn't matter. God is big enough to deal with an elephant and patient enough to steer a donkey. Say amen right there. And as long as God's on his throne, we can still accomplish the will of God. It's amazing. And I'm going quickly to get you to bed tonight like that will happen. But anyway... He gives Nehemiah permission. Can you imagine this? Nehemiah is now approaching the will of God for his life. This is the reason God had formed Nehemiah in the womb of his mother. This is why Nehemiah had first drawn breath. Long before Nehemiah was, God has scripted this plan and purpose just for him. Can you imagine the stirring in his soul? The excitement he must have felt as they began to pack for that journey. I mean, as they began to near the will of God. He'd never laid eyes on it, but he's about to. Can I tell you that same God has a plan and purpose for your life as well. I can see as they approach the city and it begins to break the horizon. Can you imagine how excited he got as he laid hold on the will of God for his life? Now the Bible says that they're in the city for three days. I guess Nehemiah is probably like some of us are. We're a little bit antsy. I like to be busy. I forget which one of you it was. I don't know if it's Brother Flood or who it was. Somebody was asking me, uh, are, 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 are things around the church busy? And I said, not busy enough. Hello. But Nehemiah was there, and I can see him wrestling through night number one, wrestling through night number two, and by night number three, he couldn't take it anymore. So that's enough. He said, fellas, get up. I can't take it anymore. There's something to do for God. Get up. They're probably thinking, what in the world's wrong with Nehemiah? I mean, it's the middle of the night. What do you want? Let's take a walk. Let's take a walk with me. Oh, Nehemiah's off his rocker. Nehemiah didn't take his night medication. What in the world? And he doesn't even tell him what he wants. Just walk with me. Since you all dress the same, get up here and walk with me. Come on. I mean, it says, uh, j- j- come on and walk with me. I hope you do better at this than the offering. But anyway, walk with me. <laughs> he did not go to these fellows and say, you see the walls, we're going to build them back. You see the gates, we're going to restore them. He just said, walk with me. They walked around the city. The Bible said, hold on. The Bible said, the Bible said that the wreckage was so great that he couldn't even stay on the beast that he was riding. So he gets off his mother-in-law. I mean, he gets off of his... Ah, uh, she's not here tonight. She'll be all right. But anyway, he gets off of the beast that he was riding. And they have to crawl through the wreckage, over the burned timbers and through the rubble of those walls. And no doubt these men are thinking, what in the world is going on? But I believe Nehemiah all the time in his heart was saying, God, would you please let them see it the way I see it? Boy, this is too big for me to do without help. God, would you lay on them what you've laid on me? Just walk with me, fellas. God, you've got to touch their heart. They don't see it. We can't do it. And the Bible said they took that walk together. The Nehemiah assembled 
the crowd. And in verse number 17, he begins to reveal to them what God had put on his heart. The Bible said, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates are ever burned with fire. He said, come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that would be no more reproach. And I read that and thought, why didn't Nehemiah say, fellas, we're going to build the wall back. We're going to restore the gates. This city's going to see revival. We're going to restore what's been broken down. Why didn't he tell them that and then take the walk? Here's why. Because they would have said, that's not in the budget. Amen. They would have said, that's too hard. They would have said, the odds are against us. They would have said, he can't do that in this generation. And Nehemiah understood, God's going to open their eyes. If I'm going to have their heart, they've got to see it the way God let me see it. And I believe as they took that walk with Nehemiah, Nehemiah already had the vision. But I believe God began to give them the vision of their Nehemiah. And so much so that when we get to verse 18 and Nehemiah tells them, the hand of God is on my life. Those broken walls are going to stand again. Those burned gates are going to be restored. We're going to build this thing back. They didn't see the hardship. They didn't see the impossibility. They didn't see the difficulty. They said, let us, not you, Nehemiah, let us rise up and build together. Now, here's the message tonight. I'm looking for a generation of young people that'll slow down long enough to see, I mean, not with your physical eye, but get a vision laid on you by God of what we can do in this generation if we just let God have our life the walls are broken down the gates are burned with fire we need someone to get on board and say let us rise up and build it's time we took a walk together it's time somebody got a vision for our generation it's time somebody signed up to serve it's time we get tired of the reproach and tired of the destruction and tired of the rubble and say God it's God it's time for us to get together and rise up and build I'm not asking for a borrowed vision I want to ask you a sure vision I'm not asking for a parent's vision. I want to know what's your vision. I'm not asking even for a preacher's vision. I want to know what is your vision. Aren't you tired of reading about how God used others? Aren't you tired about just talking about how it used to be? Wouldn't you like to see God move in our generation? We need someone to say, here am I. I'm not much, but you're everything. God, would you give me a vision? It's time we took a walk together. It's time we had our eyes open by faith in God. Quit looking through the temporal lens and see that God is on his throne and we can build this thing back if we'll just let God use us. Can I just be honest with you? I don't want to be like every other preacher. I don't want to be like every other dead preacher in town. I'd rather die than do that. I don't want to just have a church like every other church. Well, I don't know why I can't get folks to come to my church. I'm going to say, I wouldn't go to your church either. You have to have pills to get through the service. (laughs) Hello? If somebody died, I mean, the paramedics would drag out 20 people to find the corpse. (laughs) I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be the average. I want to be the exception. And it's not for our glory, but to bring glory to a God that is worthy of that glory. And what we're praying tonight is that somebody would step up. I don't want to be like everybody else. There wasn't a crowd that followed Nehemiah. The Bible said him and a few men. 
And there might not be a crowd that will follow us. But last I checked, all we need is a remnant. And if I could just get a few, I mean one or two from each section that would step beyond everybody else and say, I want to do something for God. Go to higher ground with God. Get a vision to do a work for God. We might could do something to turn this nation back to the Lord. We need a vision. Tonight, we're assembled in this place. You fellas can sit down. I don't want you ruining my video. Sit down. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tonight, we're assembled in this place. And if we're going to be honest, the diagnosis is this, perishing. Families are perishing. I mean, so much so, you can't even find a man qualified to be a deacon anymore. Marriages are perishing. Morality is perishing. Decency is perishing. Sanity. Churches are perishing. Colleges are perishing. Joy, hope, society is perishing. And the diagnosis is in, and we cannot blame politics or the public school or whoever else in whatever philosophy. Because the Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. Can I say there's nothing wrong with our world today that couldn't be fixed by a group of old-fashioned Christians that just get a vision. Vision sees beyond self. Vision sees beyond man's limitation. Vision sees past the difficulty. Vision does not take a survey to see who else is on board. Vision moves forward by faith in God. Vision says, get in the car or get out of the way because I'm going to go forward. We need a vision. Would you take a walk with me this evening and see the walls broken down? I'm not asking for what's on your heart. That's the problem in the first place. We're too worried about what's on our heart. I don't want to know what's on your heart. What I want us to do is to take what's on our, on our heart off. And say, God, would you put on my heart what's on your heart? Not ambition, not good intentions, but a plan for action, a vision. Take a walk with me around the walls tonight. Let's just slow down. See the wreckage and see the rubble of your generation left by drugs. My wife and I were driving to a meeting and saw a billboard in the state where I grew up and they were bragging only 18% of our high school students are addicted to opioids. That's a blessing, isn't it? They were bragging on it. I mean, take a walk with me around the walls and see that young lady who had much potential. Beautiful young lady, but couldn't help but put a needle in her arm. Life is wrecked. She needs... Not just the average Christian. She needs a church, a Christian, a young person, somebody with vision. See that young man who had much potential but couldn't help but put pills down his throat. I was preaching in the southern part of Georgia a couple of years ago and there's a young man there and he was talking to the sidewalk. And the first reaction would be like, that fellow's crazy, but that's somebody's son. And that's what drugs had done to his life. Who's going to be the preacher in your generation that loves people like that? Amen. Who's going to be part of the church that ministers to those kind of people? The walls are broken down. Would you take a walk with you around the walls and see the rubble and the effects of alcohol on your generation? You can't even watch a sporting event anymore, but what they shove booze down your throat. 
I mean, everything, is, everything you do, they push liquor and alcohol. Can I say it's not ever been right and it's still not right tonight for a Christian to drink alcohol? Hello? It, that, young, that, that, that young family, daddy's off someplace getting drunk. Mama doesn't know where her husband is. Kids don't know where daddy is, don't have any food to eat. But somebody needs to love people like that. Somebody's going to preach to people like that. The walls are broken down. Why don't you take a walk with me around the walls of your generation and see the wreckage and the rubble left by the abortion clinic. And the millions of lives that have been murdered in the womb of their mother. What an amazing thing that people would applaud a politician that would push any kind of legislation that would try to normalize and legalize the literal murder of a baby after birth. They were circulating through social media these videos a couple years ago of the Planned Parenthood people having lunch with folks and they were talking about selling the body parts of babies like the spare part of a Buick in a back alley someplace. I was preaching in a meeting in a, in a state in the Northwest and a woman came to me in her 70s and was crying and she said, Brother Cooper, I just want to listen to you. She said, I had an abortion. And she was an older lady and I said, well, what, what do you mean? She said, well, when I was young, she said, I made a mistake and didn't know what else to do. I wasn't saved. And she said, I had an abortion. And she said, every day I live with that regret. Can I say there needs to be a church in town, though, a Christian someplace that can knock a door, find a young lady like that before she makes the wrong decision and tell her, yeah, you made a mistake, but listen, there is hope. Amen. And there is healing, and there is still a gospel that can change your life. Why don't you take a walk with around the walls of your generation and see the rioting in our streets and seeing the mocking of authority figures and watch as they try to blur the gender lines of identification. I preached yesterday morning in the church on toxic masculinity. I'm for it, by the way, just not their definition of it. I think we suffer from it every day. You say, what is it? Anti-biblical masculinity. It's toxic. But take a walk around the walls where folks your age are growing up and they don't have enough sense because their parents don't have enough sense to know what restroom to use. It's a scary thing. It's a dangerous thing. Take a walk around the walls of this generation and look at the folks in your age bracket who, when they didn't get their way the last election, were throwing bricks through car windows. Nothing, nothing made any less sense to me than some hipster lumberjack-looking dude throwing a brick through a Starbucks window. I'm like, that's like shooting your own team. You should at least go down to like Gander Mountain or something like that. I mean, take a walk with me and watch as they try to turn your generation into not patriots but activists for liberalism. The walls are falling down. Take a walk with me and watch as they pervert the, uh, the, the blessing of marriage. Take a walk with me on the walls of this generation. I was preaching in Detroit, Michigan a couple years ago. Go with me to the major cities. I hardly ever, if ever, preach in the city limits of many major cities. I've never preached in New York City. When I was traveling, I'd preach 400 times or more a year. Never preached in the city limits of Los Angeles. Never preached in the city limits, and I, I know there are churches there, but I never preached in the city limits of Chicago, and I know there's some churches in these places. But we're almost losing our nation because we're leaving our major cities. 
because it costs too much to live there and the culture's weird and it's not as easy, you think, as maybe out in the suburbs someplace. And we're just almost an election away of not having an America anymore. What happened to that generation of preachers and young people that I used to, I mean, that I've only heard about, that they used to have, that I've only heard about, that maybe even a young couple, they ought to be married with children, and God would so deal with that young man's heart that he'd sell out his business, he'd pack up his family, he'd go to Bible college for a few years, and then he'd go off to a city, find him a storefront, and start a church. We used to drive through those big cities and see an empty Walmart building and think that's a good place for a church. I was preaching in Detroit, Michigan a couple years ago, and I took my brother-in-law. He came here last year with me to, just to come out here, and I took him to show him two places in Detroit. I'm big on fundamental history and things of that, my heritage, so I took him to two places. I took him to a place that used to be called the Temple Baptist Church. Yeah. Pastor by a man, J. Frank Norris, and then G.B. Vick after him. Great church. Closed. Well, different. And then I drove him to a church that had an impact on my life, a place called Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel Baptist Church was pastored by Dr. Tom Malone. On my desk, I have a handwritten outline from Dr. Tom Malone. I took him there, and that church was all boarded up and for sale signs there, and there was a window that was still open, and he and I peeked through it, and you could see that old auditorium with those old wooden uh, theater-type chairs in there. And there's a sign on the wall that said, uh, I think it said like six to seven-year-old Sunday school, this way. Like you could move in there and still have church. We went to the front doors, and you could see through those big glass front doors, and there was a table there, and it was covered with trash. There's a Mountain Dew bottle and an empty Slim Jim wrapper, and on that table, out of the frame, curled up on the edges, was a formal portrait of Dr. and Mrs. Tom Malone. Man built that church out of nothing. Had 6,000 people at midweek Bible study for sale. And now we can't twist a young man's arm to preach on a bus or just to show up on time. Hey, fellas, the walls are broken down. Who's going to pick up the slack? What happened to that generation of men like Lester Roloff and Jack Hiles and those who had a vision and would go to a city hey, and just start something? We need a vision. Go with me to the rural areas where I grew up. You drive with me out those curvy roads, and if you ever come, I'll drive you out of them and you'll get sick. But anyway, you go out to, with these curvy roads where I grew up in West Virginia, those hills are covered with little white church buildings. More people buried out back than ever sit on the inside. Dead. And then we got 20 or 30 Bible college graduates that just sit in the service, called to preach and not do anything. And say, well, why don't you go pastor? Well, I don't want to run 20. Well, that's 20 more than you're running in your dorm. Hello? Maybe go get you an old van or something. You might even double your attendance next week. Take a walk with me around the walls of your generation. See all the young people who aren't privileged to come to a conference like this because they don't have a home life or a preacher in their life at this point that can bring them. I mean, you see them all the time. You see them out there dirty. I mean, just living in just repeat. I mean, just horrible situation. 
I remember a few years ago, I was out of town and I was preaching. My wife was the secretary of our church there at the time in Lexington, and she and I were on the phone. And she said, did you hear about the, in the news the young boy that was murdered? And I said, I did. And what happened is a man got strung out on some kind of a drug, and he, he uh, drove from, I think it was Illinois, to Versailles, Kentucky. Versailles, Kentucky is spelled like Versailles, but since it's Kentucky, they call it Versailles. <laughs> He randomly broke into a house and got a knife out of the drawer. And he went upstairs, doesn't know the family, and opened the door, and there's a six-year-old boy asleep in his bed. The little boy's name was Logan. And he stabbed that little boy and murdered him. The father woke up and wrestled that man outside and held him in the yard until the police came. And I wish they'd just let the father administer justice in the yard. They arrested that man, and it was all over the news. All the major news outlets covered it. Fox News covered it. MSNBC covered it. CNN, <clears throat> CNN covered it. They all covered it. Churches began to come out of the woodwork saying, we want to have his funeral at our church. I'm talking about every liberal church in the area. And they had his funeral at a liberal church. My wife was working in the office. She said, but there is some good news. She said, the little boy began to ride a church bus when he was four. He got saved and baptized when he was five. He went to heaven when he was six. And every time I tell it, the hair on my neck wants to stand up. And I, I told her, I said, I'm glad there was at least one church in town that cared about that poor little boy when he was alive. Because there's a whole lot that want him now that he's dead and can bring attention. But can I say there's probably one or two of those in your town and in your classroom, and on your street that needs somebody to care about their soul while there is still yet hope. Why don't you get a vision tonight? I read the illustration. It said the pilgrims traveled 3,000 miles across the ocean in an old rickety wooden boat. I mean, what a vision that was. 3,000 miles across the ocean, they could have died, but they were seeking freedom to worship God, freedom to live the way they wanted to live, and they risked it and they traveled. And the illustration said they were in America for just a handful of years, four years. And they took a vote whether or not to make a road five miles westward from the coast. And that same crowd that had a 3,000-mile over-ocean vision after four years voted no to go five miles west on land. Can I say it doesn't take long to lose a vision? Would you take a walk with me tonight? I'm glad that you're here, and it's a lot of fun. But I sure wish somebody would just get a hold of this thing this evening and see the walls are broken down and that the gates are burned with fire. And the theme is step up, and maybe you just say, you know what, God, I'll step up. If you'll use me, I want to be available where there is no vision. Would you take a walk with me? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.